Resolute Square. Our guest today on the podcast is Michael J. Moore. Not that Michael Moore, this Michael Moore. <laughs> he is a an incredibly smart observer of a lot of the electoral comings and goings and craziness in the great state of Georgia. And I wanted to, to, to have him on today to talk a little bit about Georgia's taken a big central role in the legal challenges that Donald Trump is facing right now. His dislike of Fannie Willis has taken him down some very ugly paths. Where's the uh, the state of play there in, in your mind in the case today? And and then I want to talk a little bit about the politics of Georgia going forward. Because uh, as as your neighbor down in Florida, I live about one minute from the Georgia border. I want to talk to you a little bit about where you see things headed uh, in the state of Georgia. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on and for a chance to talk to you. It's a pleasure. You know, the, the Georgia case is unique. And I, I do think you're right that it's a, a major case uh, as we think about uh, the Trump prosecutions across the country, uh, simply because it gets him out of the federal court, this idea that he might can pardon himself one day because you can't do that in a Georgia case, in a state case, he wouldn't have that power. So it does have a particularly uh, grand heft to the sledgehammer that's hanging over his head, uh, <laughs> if you will, uh, at, at this point. The, you know, th- there are some issues, I think, with the case, and I, I, I've, I've been pretty vocal about it. I, I was a prosecutor, and I don't like the armchair quarterback and second guess on the prosecutor's moves, but I, I thought the case was probably charged too broadly. Uh, and, and what happens sometimes is when you cast that large of a net, you get tangled up in it yourself. And, and so what I, what I see is when you've got 19 co-defendants, you, we already know that the judge thinks a trial of that magnitude is really unmanageable in the Fulton Superior Court, that there's no way to do that. He's having to think about breaking down those cases and trying them in separate groups. And while at the same time, there seems to be this effort to make sure that the trial gets in before the election. Um, and I think the, the RICO case, uh, the, the complexity of the RICO charges involved and the number of defendants uh, is probably really makes that an impossibility. I, I, there's just no way, even if we started in March or August or wh- whatever point the most optimistic uh, outlook could be, I, I don't see how the case could be completed b- before the election. Uh, we've got another RICO case going on here in, in Atlanta right now that's, uh, that took about a year to select a jury. So it's not a it's not something that um, uh, I think is likely. It does seem like an awful lot of the co defendants in the case have sort of flipped or confessed or agreed to cooperate. Although I think in Trump world, agreeing to cooperate is always maybe a different definition than a lot of people would think that traditionally agreeing to cooperate would be. Right. I think we've seen I think four defendants now that have, have entered guilty pleas, and as part of that, they've had to agree to uh, give testimony or at least give a proffer statement to the prosecutor about what the evidence was of the case, and then they were required to write some 
sort of innocuous apology letter to the people of the state of Georgia uh, for their efforts in the fraud. But what, what was interesting about the pleas, I thought, was here we've sort of touted this case as being, uh, you know, the, the grandest election fraud case in the history of the country. And, and we're seeing co-defendants get felony pleas that with, with first offender, which means no conviction. So at the end of the day, the people who were part of this grand conspiracy are still going to be able to vote uh, and, and, and have all the rights that, that, that non-felons do. And so uh, it's, there's, prosecutors use the, uh, the effort to get plea agreements and they use witness cooperation to do, be the building blocks of their case. Um, these folks kind of held fast uh, to their stance and weren't going to plea or cooperate until they were indicted. So I think that's the reason we're seeing some of the leniency in the in the plea agreements, um, but but whether or not they actually have information, and we haven't heard that yet. I mean, we've we've heard a lot, but we haven't heard that anybody's been able to put their finger right on the former president, uh, and that's going to be the key for the district attorney uh, as she goes forward. That, to my mind, is is really where the rubber meets the road here, right? As much as it sounds like a big, noisy, ugly case that could tag him, it's always a crapshoot in some degree. Even with a strong case, there's always a sort of sense of, you know, if it gets to a jury, it could all fall apart. It could all go a different direction. That's right. It takes And it takes one, right? Uh, so the, the defense is playing to an audience of one. They just want the one juror who might be sympathetic to, to prevent a conviction. That's a much different burden than the prosecutor carries, who's got to convince the entire group. And and so um, these, we've seen sort of some media statements, some leaks out, some criticisms of the prosecution, some criticisms of the case, and, and all that, I think, from folks associated with the former president. Those are designed really more in for the political arena to have the tentacles then reach into the jury pool as well to, to possibly, uh, you know, affect how people see the case. And, and you know, cases aren't typically lost uh, by some Matlock moment or some Perry Mason moment, my cousin Vinny moment where somebody comes in and says, ah, suddenly I found the missing piece of evidence. Cases are lost by a death of a thousand cuts. And so it's these little nicks along the way that can cause a problem for a prosecution. Uh, and, you know, they've had a few little roadblocks and a few little stumbles uh, as, they've, as they've made their way through. The, the, the biggest, I think, right now, of course, is, just the fact that uh, nobody's put their finger on him, and he's one of this mass uh, who, who the, uh, of people who the prosecutor wants to move forward with, and, and I, I find that hard to hard to imagine that we're going to get an answer that quick. There was some talk for a while, and I think the governor kind of shut it down, but of this idea of of the legislature doing something to invalidate Fannie Willis as and to basically remove her from the case and, and end it uh, on Trump's behalf. Has there been any more rumbling on that? I mean, th- th- when I saw that happening, I was like, whoa, even the conservative Georgia legislature is going to have a hard time selling that one. Right. We, we saw a group of district attorneys uh, come together and basically uh, challenge that, that law, that proposal that the legislature had, had tried to run through. Including some Republicans, stuff. right? That's right. I mean, it was, and that's, I think, probably more important. It was a broader spectrum than just, a, you know, the Democratic friends of the district attorney here. Um, there's been a little bit of a, a, a reheating of that argument. Uh, you know, in the last week or so, there was a motion filed by the, one of the defendants uh, prior to the motion deadline, which accused the district attorney of some improprieties and things like that. And I don't have any idea about the merits of the motion. I don't know if it's true or not. It doesn't really matter to me at this point. It, it's simply that that gives the type of fuel to this fire 
that was in the legislature in the last session to come up with this this prosecution removal type statute uh, that they were trying to use against the district attorney. And I think that's going to you're going to hear a lot about that. The legislative session is just beginning here in Georgia. Uh, and, and I think and expect that we'll hear, uh, uh, you know, that type of information come out in support of a renewal of this the, the, this type of statute. Georgia's a kind of paradoxical state for me right now because, you know, you had a secretary of state and a governor who essentially defended the validity of Georgia's election. And Trump, you know, give me, I just need 11,847 votes or whatever it was. You had these guys who defended that election and they took an awful lot of heat for it. And they're in that weird box, you know, and, and guys from like Gabe Sterling on up, they, they, they're, they're in that weird box where Georgia's a Republican state. It's a conservative state. And they, and they, they're under tremendous pressure all the time. This moment we're in, uh, where, where do you read sort of the political landscape there? I mean, I, it's hard for me to see how like Brian Kemp goes out and does a rah-rah, you know, barnstorming tour across Georgia with Donald Trump in the fall of this year. That's a great point. I mean, we, we, we really are a purple state, but we're a little more red than we are purple, I think, to be fair. There were some good folks that came forward and took a stand when they needed to. I mean, I, I've, I've taken a little different position in the sense that I, I felt like some of those same people created the beast. Oh, you oh know, for sure. They, 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 oh, yeah. They didn't turn around. They, they didn't turn around. We want to give them the, you know, the Medal of Honor for, uh, for basically beating down what they, what they built. Uh, and that's that's been troubling to me in, in in some respects. I think there's an article out today where talking about Brian Kemp is wanting to uh, or trying to appear more on a national level, maybe through some of his statements and the things that he's doing and have more influence in Republican governors associates, those kinds of things. And so whether or not he may be eyeing some Senate seat that's, you know, up for grabs later on, I don't know. Uh, I don't think he'll turn around and just uh, embrace Trump fully. I think it really puts the Republicans in a unique position. And you saw some of this in the, in the uh, town hall with Nikki Haley and DeSantis the other night. You know, if that's your choice, who's it going to be? I mean, what are you going to have the guts to stand up and talk about what happened or not? And, and uh, you know, I don't know that all the Republicans who have spoken out thus far will because I, I feel like they, they almost are, are waiting on another option. But when that option, if it's off the table, will they will they still have the guts to to take a stand? That's really the question, I think. And you're 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 really smart to bring up the like the, the Haley DeSantis thing. This is the closing act of the primary. It's the closing. That's probably the last serious debate we're going to see. And neither one of them could come out and say that they were going to not support a guy who may be a felon by the time he is the Republican nominee. And I think you're right. I mean, it's like they did the right thing for a minute, but you have to ignore what they were doing before and and and, and basically sense because they, they, the the fear of of Trump's base drives a lot of that behavior. But man, it's it must be hard to watch it up close because you know in Florida we sort of understand it. It's just baked in the cake here. <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's tough to watch it, but you, you know, it's not. It's, it, there's nothing new. I mean, it's it's like we're watching the same thing over again. We 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 watched even after January six. You know, we watched the 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 men and women in the legislature and the Senate. They they ran and hid behind the shields of these police officers who protected them. And then when it came time to basically acknowledge that heroism and talk about the things that they they kind of cowered away. And I 
that 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 has disturbed me greatly, and I, I think it should everybody. I I don't know what what else we expect expect from folks, um, but I but I expect them to sort of take a stand, even if it ends up costing them a job they may want one day, and at least they can look themselves in the mirror the next day. Yeah. You know, so you mentioned, and I think you're right about this. You know, I call Georgia a conservative state. And it is, I think, even even some of the blue areas are more conservative than other Democratic areas in the country. But we basically have the Atlanta metro, the donut of counties around the Atlanta metro, about 65% of, eh, 62% of the total statewide expected turnout. Is Atlanta becoming a more blue anchor in this? It sort of feels that way to me. It feels like you know, maybe some of the Northwest suburbs are still trending red, but it feels like the rest of Atlanta is becoming even more of a, a blue bastion than it had been before. It is. And it's following the pattern that we've seen sort of in, in years, you mentioned the donut and that is that the, you, you know, the inside of the donut changes a little bit. And so the outer perimeter changes and then that outer perimeter starts to shift and there's a deep, a further outer, outer perimeter. And that's what we're seeing. Some of the counties that, um, but I would have not, and I grew up here, not that I would have not at the time have called Metro Atlanta. We're calling Metro Atlanta, and uh, those counties are are are, ten, are trending Republican. Uh, we're seeing it. I think politicians in the state, though, have to their own peril uh, ignored other parts of the state, thinking that they had to win Atlanta. And you know, there is a there's a large voice to be heard in rural Georgia and South Georgia, and of course in North Georgia. And, and you know, we've got our issues in North Georgia. We've got. Some folks in Congress who um, are, are quite unique from from that area that represent the nor- northern part of the state. But, uh, there's a breadth of people, but you you're 100 percent right to say that it's conservative. You know, it, even when we had Democratic senators like Sam Nunn, you know, today Sam would have probably been seen as a as a moderate Republican. He certainly would have never been considered a a, a, a far right Republican, and the Democrats wouldn't have accepted him. Uh, on a on a democratic ticket, so we've we've shifted around, but it's stayed conservative regardless. Yeah, I think that's right, and I, and I think the election of Reverend Warnock broke a lot of of brains in the Republican Party. It's like they they saw a lot of the old idea of you know the city too busy to hate and the state you know that, that was going to lead the way in the new South. I think it broke a lot of their brains. I think it gave them some real agita and real confusion because there was this idea that you were just going to elect. You know David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler again, uh, who were basic, you know, sort of standard issue what I call UGG boot Republicans. They were nothing, nothing fancy about them. They were just basic Republicans. So, I, I, but I think Warnock really broke their broke their brain a lot. I think so. I mean, he he was a unique candidate though, and that's you know Democrats sometimes we drink too much of our own Kool Aid and think that we've suddenly flipped the state, right? Uh, but you, you take the you, you take a a, a a pastor from a, a revered church and uh he he obviously is is uh his campaign speeches were like sermons that he's given from the pulpit i mean they they flow like music and and so it's, well, he uh, knows what he's doing um, it, 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 <laughs> well, right it drew it, it drew people in and it, it, it and also i mean we were we were coming off that sort of weird time of of uh, the election and ugly politics and that type of thing i I'm not one who thinks that the Democrats can uh, can count on uh, winning or holding the Senate seats. You know, I think that's no. that's still up for grabs here here in the state. I think. No, I think they've uh, got a lot of work like to do. Else, timing, yeah, timing was critical, and I think that's what happened. Do you think that the, that the Trump trials are having any political impact in Georgia? Probably not. Um, I I've, I have worried that we have too many. Uh, it, it may be probably not 
uh, in a negative way for him. I sometimes think that what's happening is people are getting, um, they're just getting too accustomed to it. It's becoming our new normal to hear about this. Right. At the same time, he's using the cases as uh, a, a great uh, time to make a stump speech and, and, and to show that he's been made, made a martyr. Uh, and, and so for the people who were going to vote for him regardless after everything that happened, even before he was indicted, I don't think that it, they mean anything. I mean, I think they're still with him. For the people who were going to vote against him, uh, even before the cases were indicted, I think they were going to vote against him. It's that middle group. And I think some of those folks are starting to see, like, you know, what? Are we, why do we have all these cases? Have we done too much? Why do we keep going? What's the kids? Could, couldn't we have one case and let's close this thing down? I, I've thought a lot of times about the Trump. Uh, presidency and it's you know it's our, our republic is really a, in its infancy stage you know and and the, the the trump administration to me was sort of like the dirty diaper on the infant baby of our <laughs> republic and we, we keep we keep talking about how bad it was and how bad it smelled and all we ought to just clean it up and move on yeah but we not we don't is. do that we keep going right back into the same thing and i i don't know that that's the recipe to win and i think you're you know by continuing to talk about it um as democrats the that's that is um, firing up some of the people who who are like, look, we need to be talking about it tomorrow. Well, Michael, listen, Georgia is going to be a linchpin in this election. I look forward to talking to you again soon. We'll come back at you when the trials uh, start to grind a little further into the uh, into the end stage. But thank you so much for coming on the enemies list today. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to, to catching up with you as we see what's what's down the road. But thanks for having me. Very good. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.